Welcome back to So Every Soul Sings, Worship for the Real Church. I am Bethany Pedigo. I'm here with Rod Ellis, and we have a special guest with us today. Yeah, we do. The pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church, Tim Harris, is with us today. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be with you guys. Thank you so much. So listeners, you finally get to hear his voice because in every episode, I've said something about my pastor says, or I love it when my pastor says, and now you actually get to meet my pastor. And I'm so delighted about that because most of what I say that's good, I learned from him. And I am that's so crazy. Grateful. We'll see yeah. how it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> I, might come across a, I might come across a lot better when I'm not here. <laughs> <laughs> And that might be yeah. true of a lot of people. <laughs> so, Tim, you've been pastor at Woodburn for 24 years. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I've been pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church since 1996. That's about 24 years. Wow. Uh, luckiest man alive. I, I, love, I love my church home so much. I'm blessed. We are part of an amazing, amazing church family. And um, so much of that, I think, is because of the uniqueness that you bring to your role. So tell us how you got to be pastor at Woodburn. Where, where did it all start? I grew up in church. I mean, so literally. Um, my parents <laughs> were very godly people by the time I was born. Uh, they both have wonderful testimonies of conversion later in their lives. But I never knew uh, anything other than very godly parents. The church, our church life was always continuous with our family life, mm. which was wonderful. Um, the Bibles we carried to church, we never put away. They lived in our house and we lived out of the scriptures. The songs we sang at church, we sang at home. My mother was never able to play the piano, but she sure sat down at it daily <laughs> and always wanted to play and would, would, would try to hammer out hymns. Um, and I just grew up watching her. I'd be trying to watch Gilligan's Island and, and thinking, what's wrong with this woman? You know, I'm watching Gilligan's Island and she'd be on the piano and she'd just start playing songs to Jesus. And she would just begin to weep and cry and sing. And mm. I just grew up, you know, where worship was, was ordinary and normal. Uh, and again, the, the what we learned and did at church, we, lived out at home. My, my parents were remarkable in, in that way. That is such so a beautiful picture. That is such a beautiful picture of integration of faith in life. And, and one of the things that you say often is not your Sunday life or not your church life, but your life life. And, yeah. and I, that's, that's probably where some of that comes from is going all the way back then. Yeah. And I love your parents. They're, they're a part I'm of our church. My, my parents oh. are still the same people that they've never compartmentalized at yeah. all and, and and so and for me it was never normal to compartmentalize church life from life life we loved church and everything about church was just a joyful way of life for us so i grew up uh loving the church loving ministry loving worship uh sunday morning sunday night wednesday night we were baptist mm -hmm. um and so for me to you know grow into a life of ministry there was nothing surprising about that either except that I loved art. I wanted to be an artist. Uh, so for a number of years, that was the, the route I was taking. It really wasn't so much about trying to run away from ministry or not be in ministry. It's hmm. just that in the, in the small Baptist context in which I was raised, the only real minister was the, was the preacher. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I never saw myself as a preacher. I, I, I really thought of all of the gifts I could possibly have, and I never felt that gifted. But I really didn't think preaching was ever going to be something I would do. And so I went on uh, through art school. I graduated with a, with a Bachelor of Fine Arts, still loving the Lord, still serving the Lord, still always living out my life in the faith community. Uh, but slowly I just began to, you know, began to see the, the dots beginning to connect and, and draw me toward a, a life in vocational ministry. Even with that, I still didn't see pastoring as, as a way to do that. Again, it was about preaching. I, I didn't think I could preach. I didn't think that that would be something I would ever do. I went all the way through seminary saying, I'll do anything but preach. <laughs> and again, even that, <laughs> what, it wasn't being rebellious. It wasn't that I thought preaching was something that I wouldn't want to do. I just, it, it, it wasn't something I felt like I was going to be gifted at, at at all. And to this day, I don't feel particularly gifted uh, in that. Uh, so for me, uh, ministry was often about uh, everything other than preaching. So my first mm. ministry uh, position, so to speak, was as a volunteer uh, and then part-time uh, song, uh, you know, music minister and youth minister. I, I loved it. I, I loved it. Everything about it. That's how I went through college. I was, you know, working part-time as a, as a youth and music minister. Uh, I loved uh, leading music and leading worship. Uh, even back in those days, sang out of the Baptist hymnal and loved everything about that. I, I really did. Uh, went on to seminary. In seminary, I, I realized that this is a great opportunity just to be in the church. So I did everything else, sing in the choir. I served as a deacon. I was on the personnel committee, which every pastor should have to do before Absolutely. they become a pastor. Um, yeah. It was yeah. just amazing to be a, in the in the lay leadership of, of of the church that I you know served and loved when we were in seminary. And it was not. It was literally. Right at graduation, I was finishing my PhD in aesthetic theology, religion, and the arts with no aspirations whatsoever to be a pastor. And that's when God called me to come to Woodburn and be the pastor. And that was 24 years ago. Um, so I, I sort of got to come in the back door of pastoring. I did everything else but preach and everything else but pastor in preparation to be a pastor. Uh, and I'm thankful for that. I, I really yeah. have, have loved that journey. And, and, I, and at this point, I love being a pastor more than anything. And I love preaching as hard as it is. I love it. <laughs> I, I, think I think that's great so, preparation. I think more people should have preparation like that. <laughs> well, right. I agree, too. Again, just to, to serve as a deacon, to sing in the choir, um, to, to see ministry from from that other side because once you step into it as i am now it's very difficult to know what it is to be on the other side of ministry like to be on the personnel committee and to and to evaluate church staff and, and, and do that in a room full of people who aren't ministers you know that's that's good preparation it's it's yeah. good to it's good to know how uh, other people see us and speaks My very much to the is- way that you lead because you lead like somebody that understands what it's like to be on the other side. Some of that's your personality, your Enneagram too. And so the whole helper kind of dynamic is a part. I mean, you're just thinking about what other people are thinking. It's, it's kind of wired into you, but you also have that wired into your experience, which means when you're in a personnel committee, you know what it's like to be on the other side of that table and to think like they're thinking or not think like you're thinking, which may be even more difficult to come to terms with. 
Yeah, I hope so. Again, 24 years later, I, I hope I've lost <laughs> lost a lot of that. But but yeah, that, that's sort of my makeup. I I'm sort of a uh, I, I reason and think spatially, which means I'm constantly sort of looking from somebody else's perspective and trying to see it through through other other people's eyes. That's a that's a strength and a weakness. It, it can tie me up <laughs> sometimes if I'm if I get too concerned with what other people are thinking. But I'm usually trying to see it from from another person's perspective. Bethany, what did you start to say about your daddy? Oh no, it's a, my husband is a ER husband. physician, but Sorry. he was an EMT for years. Oh wow! I, I think that that was great preparation for his job. Same thing. Yes. Yeah. 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 I love your husband. He's awesome. So <laughs> Tim, um, while we're recording this, we're still living, we're doing this conversation by zoom because we're practicing social distancing. We're in the middle of the pandemic of 2020 coronavirus is still out there. It's a thing, which means worship doesn't look at all now. Like it looked in February. We are, we are doing online only worship. We're not gathering in the sanctuary. And I'm curious in this season, what it is that you're noticing or paying attention to or picking up on about worship as a, I don't know if I want to say discipline, but action of the church or ministry of the church. What is it that you're paying attention to now or noticing now that is different because of the circumstances that we're in? I, personally speaking, I've become a lot more aware of the um, importance of what I would just call loose connections. Mm. I think we all know that we, that we love our friends and we love the people that we know uh, most closely and most dearly, especially in the, in the church community. Yeah. But uh, it's funny how once, once you are not allowed to gather, how much you begin to miss that lady that sits two rows in front of your church and you don't really know her name, (laughs) but, and, and you didn't realize how important it was to, to, to pass her in the door on the way in and, and, to, and to just hear her alto voice or see the back of her head. Um, I, I, think, I think loose connections are so vital to us. And that's wow. not just in church. It's the, the lady that pours your coffee every morning on your way into work and you stop at the same place. And I think we just forget how much loose connections like that, like not necessarily even those that we call friends or, or, or close acquaintances, but, but their connections. And in this time of distance, uh, I just really miss those, you know, just to be able to say good morning to strangers, almost those loose connections. And in the body of Christ, we have those too. And, and I just feel like when, when we're deprived Obviously, we miss our friends. Obviously, we miss the people that in our small group. But, but right. I, I think you really begin to miss the loose connections, and we forget how much of our soul is fed by those almost unconscious daily uh, connections with people that are that are are not intimate, so to speak, but but vitally important to the nourishment of our hearts. That's really interesting. I don't mean for this question to be obtuse, but there are a lot of people listening perhaps who are worship leaders and they think, yeah, but what does that have to do with worship? And I think I have, because I know you, I think I know a little bit about what your answer is going to be, but I'm curious, what does that have to do with worship? What's, what's the same? It's the same idea that in, in worship, in, 
in ministry leadership, we often don't know what it is to be on the other side of that. And so, you know, while we're on stage, I guess we can't help but think all eyes are on us and everybody's thinking about us. But when you come in and you sit in the seats, you're often much more connected to the people in the seats around you. And your worship is in many ways led and fed by those you worship around. And, uh, and you may not understand how much you need them and how much you, you value them and, and what, how much they add to your worship life until you're sitting at home stirring your oatmeal watching worship online. And then you realize, you know, I, I don't even know that lady's name. I miss her. Mm. You know, I, I miss the sound of her voice behind me, you know, or the person in a, you know, in, in a liturgical church where you're reading out of, the, out of the book of prayer, there's always that one guy whose voice is louder and he sort of leads everybody from behind. And, mm. and you don't understand how much those people are, are, how much their worship feeds you. But I just think those loose connections really matter and, and we miss those. You know, the other thing I think is really surprising to me is that in this time I've discovered, and I think a lot of us have discovered how very intimate worship can be with a screen. I, th- I think we've only always thought that screens divided us. You, you think about your teenager at the at the supper table, you know, texting, and you're thinking, put that away. You know, pay attention to the people you're in the room. Because we think of screens as as making us far away from the people that we're right in the same room with. But we've, we probably never really understood how they can also make us very close to people that are far away. And... And your device is an intimate device. I, I think that's one of the things that, that I've learned. A person's phone, for example, or maybe their iPad, that's a very intimate. You, it, some people don't want anybody. It's not because you're keeping secrets. It's just you don't want other people to touch it. You, you freak out if you think you've left it down. You, you protect it with passwords. I mean, it's a very intimate possession. And I think that, that now that many of us are doing a lot of our worship, you know, through that intimate device, our experiences are surprisingly authentic and the connections are surprisingly rich. Uh, so again, I think the screens were always doing two things. They were on a negative side, kind of separating us from the people that we were near, but at the same time, they make us close to those who are far away. And so in this time of distance, we've really discovered what a powerful tool it is for bringing us together and the worship experiences that I have not just led, but the ones I'm experiencing on a nearly daily basis, this is real worship and it's real connection. And I probably didn't really understand how authentic, you know, and, and connective worship would be uh, mediated to a screen. That's amazing. I, just briefly, because I hope this will encourage somebody else. I got a phone call Sunday afternoon from one of our church members who just said, I want to thank you for the last song on Sunday. I, after the service, I was so thankful and convicted at the same time. I just knelt down beside my bed. My, my wife put her hand on my shoulder and I was praying. And, and he said, you were singing that song. I can't even tell you what the song was. You were just singing that song over me. And it would minister to me so deeply. The song was, Lord, I need you, which was 
exactly what he was experiencing in those moments was he was experiencing his need for the Lord. And as I sang that, as our team sang that song through a screen over a TV speaker, he was having an incredible moment, profound moment of intimacy with his heavenly father and his, and his wife. And so, yeah, the, the fact that screens can create that sense of connection is, is really, really magnificent. And I'm so grateful for that, for this technology that we have in, in our day to be able to, to weather the pandemic storm. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else? As far as in the pandemic and yeah. uh, what we've learned about worship? Um, no, I think those really are the, are, are the primary things. Um, as I say, the ability to feel drawn closer has has surprised me again it's it's not the same as gathering I, I miss gathering yeah but but i'm I'm really surprised how when I worship with others online I have a real sense of of being in and with the body of christ and and if if you I wouldn't have said that three months ago I wouldn't think it was as possible I wouldn't have predicted the richness of our shared communion service on Monday Thursday mm-hmm. I wouldn't have thought that kind of thing was actually possible you know, to, to mediate that, you know, over distance. But but that was a rich experience with the Holy Spirit, who we know is everywhere. But that was a rich experience with others. And I, I, I can't explain that exactly, although now I know it's it's possible. And we've got to do a better job leveraging that because it's it's real. I have yeah. a friend, dear friends who are leaders of a church, and they said during this time they've seen this explosion of maturity in growth in leaders in their church, small group leaders, uh, people who lead other ministries in the church just like jumped up and were like, these are my people. I'm going to, you know, call them. I'm going to connect with them. We're going to zoom and pray together. And, and I said to her, you know, not in an offensive way, but I said, it's, it's almost as if maybe the, the building itself or the structures that we had in place were hindering growth. And maybe during this time, we're learning things that we couldn't have learned otherwise. I think that's true. I, I think we, especially those of us who lead worship, we don't understand how we can make idols of, of how we can make an idol out of just Sunday morning. Yes. And, 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 and once that is removed, then it helps us, you know, rediscover and refocus ourselves on the, on the true God that is, um, the, the source and object of all of our praise. Uh, it's, it's been good, although it's been really difficult. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it has been really hard, but, but that part of having sort of the idol stripped away, and now it's, it's, it's really just us bare with the Holy Spirit and, and trying much more intensely to, to connect with our people. I, I think that has been a really healthy struggle. There are churches all over our land, including ours, where people have been saved. People have joined churches. People are taking steps of faith through a TV screen screen that doesn't even happen in real time. And one of the things that I love about what you said, Tim, is how it reminds us that God is bigger than our technology. Sometimes as humans, we kind of get caught up in the bigness of what we can do. And then we discover, oh, yeah, but God is bigger than that, too. And this just feels like one of those times that we've just discovered, oh yeah, God is bigger than like he, if we can't be together <laughs> oh, in the yeah. same room, he can, he can handle that. Like he's God. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's yeah. easy to forget that. Um, you mentioned making an idol of the Sunday morning um, eh, event. Um, what are some things that you think in worship ministry, we are prone to give 
too much attention to or too much value to? What do we, what do we idolize in worship ministry? In, in worship ministry, and, I, and again, I spent a lot of time as a, as a, a music minister. It's what we called us in those days. Right. Um, <laughs> and also as an artist, um, I, I think our, our temptation, and maybe I'm only speaking more for myself, but I think I'm speaking to all of us who are more artists, music types. I think we value aesthetic experience, uh, the experience of, of, of art, of music, of beauty. We all know what it is to simply be caught up in a melody or a, a groove, the flow of, of, of worship, the, the being in sync with, with your band members or, or whatever. Um, I, I know how I feel if I stand before an, a, an amazing work of art or even watching the sunrise over the lake. Um, these are aesthetic experiences. And, and while I think beauty is one of, one of the primary ways that God reaches out to us, one of the ways we can uh, begin to know God, there are those of us who just have aesthetic experiences. We, we just love music and we love, mm-hmm. um, we love moments of beauty or moments of transcendence. And, and we have a really hard time, I think, sometimes making sure that our worship is, is authentic and genuine and not just uh, really, really enjoying the song or really, really enjoying uh, the, the performance and I don't mean that in the sense of our being shallow people. I just mean as artists, this is part of the way we're wired. And it's yes, one of the ways that God it. draws our hearts. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but we can we will stop there because that experience of the beautiful is so satisfying and and fascinating for us that I, I think oftentimes what looks like, and that's also the temptation, mm-hmm. they see that look of rapture on our faces and they think, Oh wow, he really loves Jesus. No, they don't understand. No, he just really, really loves that chord progression. Right. Know? Or just really loves the sound of the violin last Sunday. I, I mean, yeah. they're just people that have aesthetic experiences. They often are drawn into worship leadership. And, and the problem is we don't always understand that that aesthetic, that experience with beauty is not the same thing as recognizing the beauty of the God whom we worship and making sure that praise goes back to him. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. We exchange oh, yes. the created for the creator. So yeah, it, absolutely. It, would it be fair to say the same thing about power? Like I think about um, the song, great I am, which we haven't done in a year or more, but for a while when we were doing it, there was so much power in that song that sometimes it felt like the satisfaction was the power of the song rather than mm-hmm. the power of the truth mm-hmm. behind the song. Well, again, that's good musician. Yeah. We, we, I think we know the elements of music that make something beautiful or make something powerful. We know how to, um, we typically learn what, what will bring response from people. But again, th- that can happen at a, at a Broadway show. You know, th- that can happen, you know, at a performance of, you know, Maroon 5. I mean, you know, when the Beatles sang, people lost their minds, you know, yeah, and it exactly. was <laughs> so again, as musicians, as, as people who understand beauty and love beauty, I think it's very easy for us to, to invite people into an aesthetic experience, but, but never, as I say, make sure that that beauty draws us to the God who's the source. 
how do we keep it straight? How do we know when we have exchanged the created for the creator? How can we tell the difference? Or can we? Yes. <laughs> I mean, Jesus would say, you, you know them by their fruits. I mean, you don't think that mm. that makes us false prophets, but it definitely makes us false. Because we're in a position where we seem to be doing one thing, but we're actually doing doing something else. I think, again, over the over time, there won't be a change. There won't be, you know, true worship is always transformative. And sooner or later, there's just no change. There's no transformation. And if, if we ourselves are genuinely on a path of discipleship, we'll be left empty and longing and, and want that that true experience and growth in Christ. But again, if we're just really in it to perform, then, then we may do that for a long, long time until people are tired of our show. You know, we may continue to try to make sure the show goes on. Hmm. Man, that just makes me want to look at myself hard. Thank you. So let's go come at it the other way. One of the things that we might pay too much attention to is the aesthetic experience or encounter with beauty. What are some things that we might undervalue in worship ministry that we, we might ought to pay a little more attention to? Well, Rod, you've heard, you've heard me say a thousand times. Uh, I think 1 Corinthians 14, you know, 1 Corinthians has a lot of very practical instructions for worship because yeah. in Corinth, it was just obviously, I, I mean, I would have loved worship at Corinth. We all would. <laughs> Me too. Man, it, it was, sounded like a good time. <laughs> it was on fire. It was just on fire. But, but Paul also you know, tried to call them back to, yeah. to things that Take he considered. <laughs> yeah, love. You know, love, <laughs> which he felt like should govern everything, including worship. But one of my favorite things he says is in First Corinthians 14, and it's what I've just come to call the, 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 the amen test. And what Paul just sort of throws it out there, but I think in that instance, he's talking about speaking in tongues or, or something like that. And he just says, you know, if you stand up and speak in tongues, how's anybody going to say amen to that? And it's just this basic assumption that Paul has that when worship is healthy, that there's a mutuality to it and that when you offer something as a gift in worship, that the expectation is what you offer is, is something that those in the room would be able to say amen to that. In other words, um, there's a sense of agreement, a, a sense of, you know, I, I, that's exactly what I would have said if I could have said that, or, or that's what I would have sung if I could sing. It's this just, uh, since when you put something into worship, there is always this full circle and, and it, it, it's our response to God, but then it brings a response for those that we're worshiping with. And, and that amen test, I think, is just something we think very little about as, as church leaders. Um, we'll just throw a song out there because, because Elevation did it last week and we really <laughs> liked it when, when they did it or or this song fits our voice or fits our team really, really well, but we don't often ask ourselves, but could our congregation possibly say amen to that? You know, it may be continuous with our experience as worship leaders because we listen to worship music all day long, all week long, but is it going to be continuous with the experience of those who aren't listening to Christian radio every day or who 
you know, who, who just may live a very different kind of life. Um, I just think we always have to remember that whatever we offer in worship, there must be some reasonable expectation that those that we're leading will be able to say amen to that, that, that it will strike a chord, it will resonate with them, and, and they will join us in that moment when they add their amen to what we just tried to offer them. Uh, I think that, that amen test is, is, is really undervalued. That's so interesting. And you have said that a bunch of ways. I don't know that I've heard you say it exactly that way. But so that's part of why it's just grabbing my attention all over again. Um, when I think about our church, which has grown significantly over the years, and even since I've been there um, pretty significantly, it's also more diverse. It's not just bigger. People are more different from one another. When I got there, when I when I first came to Woodburn seven years ago, I would say we could sing anything by Chris Tomlin or Keith Getty, and the whole church would love it. Like that was just the heart song of our church. Now there was there were other song. I mean, you know, Southern Gospel would grab a giant chunk of the church, and they would love it. I mean, there are other segments. I don't mean that that was all that resonated, but it could. I could literally pick anything by either Chris Tomlin or Keith Getty, and the whole church would love it. I can't do that anymore. There are Getty songs now that would not resonate that way, where the all of the people wouldn't say amen, um, at least not in their, like, it wouldn't resonate. It, it wouldn't just, yeah, resonate's a great word. Thank you for using that. Um, how do we, how do we continue to f- to find that? How do we mine or or unearth the things that we can say the whole church would say amen to? Or at least, uh, you know, you might leave a fringe out, but are there some guidelines? I don't, I don't mean like form a rubric for us on the spot, but are there some filters that you think of when you're pre- preparing sermons or content or anything else that might help worship leaders do well, that? I think, I think cultural relevance is very important because we're missionaries. And so we have to consider the culture of those that we're trying to reach. Missionaries think missionally. Yeah. Um, but I think in the U, I don't, I can't speak about any other context, but in the U.S. context, I think we confuse cultural relevance with uh, commercial appeal. If I can, if I can use that, um, because so much of our culture is dominated by commercialism, yeah. it, it sort of invades the church. And and we're not very good at disentangling worship experience from just those commercial expectations. You know, so for example, you can say that people come to church and, and they expect, um, they just expect to hear their favorite songs, but that's because we often treat them like consumers. We approach worship as if it's a transaction, a commercial transaction. You know, you come, uh, you're in attendance, you you give money, so I should give you a good show. We approach it transactionally. And the people whom we're supposed to be training as worshipers, we're just training them more and more to to be consumers. Um, Mm. Even the way we approach worship, you know, we tell ourselves, you know, well, you know, these days the typical attention span is only two and a half minutes. You know, well, (laughs) is that true? Or our TV shows broken up in two minute slots because they want to put more commercials in. You know, I have a feeling <laughs> that attention spans are much, much longer, but, but we just continue to overvalue um, that, that, that commercialism. And it, it invades worship ministry in so many ways that compulsion you know, at whatever point they started putting, you know, the top 10 worship songs of the month in the back of CCM magazine. You know, it's like, what? What is a top 10 worship <laughs> song? And, and why am I supposed to care? 
you know, what the top worship song, you know, that's a commercial measurement and a commercial form, you know, and, and in worship, we just, we, we've really uh, allowed that, that commercial mindset in a thousand ways to ruin the authenticity of, of worship. You, you talked about whether they're Gaither people or Chris Tomlin people or, or, you know, country music people or whatever. Um, but worship from the beginning was, was not supposed to be something that, that divided us. At the same time, it, it, it's not supposed to be something that, that just simply anchors you and what you've always been or what your preferences are. I, I think the word, um, the ancient word is, is liminal. Worship is supposed to be a, a liminal experience, uh, like a threshold. So in other words, it, it, it takes me out of who I am. It takes me out mm-hmm. of my preferences. It, it takes me out of time so that I'm no longer looking at my watch. If people are looking at their watch, they're not worshiping. And if worship leaders are looking at their watch, I'm not sure they're worshiping. Um, you know, I, I mean, honestly, isn't this supposed to be this, this moment where we're just lost in wonder and praise and and isn't that worship it's 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 liminal experience it it lifts me out of 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 my awareness of of who i am or or who i've always been or you know and and transformation only happens when we move people into those liminal places the place in between you know yeah. it's the threshold and if I only ever leave you where I found you with your preferences, with your cultural expectations, I'm not sure, you know, that that we're helping people worship in such a way that promotes transformation. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. it's the liminality of worship that we've lost, that ability to uh, to bring people to a place where, where, where something is possible, where change is possible. And uh, I think that requires a certain... Um, suspension of 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 our preconceptions, our 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 identity as sinful people, and uh, it, it lifts us into another place where the Holy Spirit might do something brand new with our lives. And that all got that really church. weird, didn't it? I apologize. No, that's incredible. <laughs> that, got, that got weird. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I thought every- that was beautiful. I, I've often said that uh, style. In worship, they, they're merely different doorways. They're just doorways. And there are groups of people that are more familiar with one doorway than another. But it, it really is the heart behind it. You know, if worship is, as you said, a response, my favorite um, definition is the right response to a revelation of God, then we can enter through different doorways and we can even take people through those doorways, ones that they're not used to, if we are being led by the Holy Spirit into a real encounter where we, as you said, are challenged by this revelation of who God is and then we are challenged to respond somehow. Yeah, but see, notice your language there is the doorway. And and again, the word I was using, the, the word liminal means threshold. And I think too often, you know, people want to stand at the door and have their preferences, their their tastes, their preferred styles, just have those continually affirmed. But that's not our job as worship leaders, you know. And, and I've often said, and Rod's heard me say, as much as I love hymns that, that take me back to my childhood and 
and and and I love that. But in worship, nobody's supposed to be taking me back. They're supposed to be taking me into God's presence and taking me forward into Christ has for me. And that's a very different experience. Maybe that's why the Psalms continue to say, sing a new song, sing a new song, because I've, I've got to be taken across the threshold of what I've always known you know, so that Christ can begin to do something in me that I've never known. And, and surely that's the purpose of sanctification or he'd already taken me home. Yeah. Tim, I want to honor your time. And so I have two or three questions that I want to ask you quickly before I do. Let me just say one worship leaders. We have sometimes made a big deal of the door and that's yeah. just our fault. And so we've got to quit making a big deal of the door and start trying to get people to ignore the door and, and think more about the presence that's on the other side of it. And I, I really, I learned that a long time ago from a, a mentor, Dave Bullock, who, who said, you know, if I could just quit talking about style, we might, we might do our churches a favor. Um, let's just not talk about the doors. Let's just talk about the one who's standing at the door knocking and wants to be with us. And, and so, yeah, just, I would encourage worship leaders everywhere to talk less about style and more about Jesus. Okay, Tim, um, one of my favorite things that you say often is that ministry is done when needs are met. Ministry is done when needs are met. So what what can our worship leading friends, whether they're the worship pastor or volunteer or they just serve on the worship team, what is it that worship ministry can, what need can worship ministry meet? Let me try that again. What need can we as worship ministers meet that's unique to our ministry? It's different from kids ministry or youth ministry or small groups. You know, what can we do to meet people's needs? I I think the first thing, this should go without having to be said, but um, be aware of the fact that that's your job as a minister. Ministry only happens when needs are met. So when you sit down to plan a worship service, you begin with what are the needs of these people? What are the needs of this congregation? What what are the, the the deepest you know sentiments of faith that need to be expressed? And what are the memories that need to be called back to? What are the affirmations of faith? I mean, you just start with the people and and their needs uh, because we're not ministering if if we're not meeting the. I don't know what we're doing if we're not meeting the needs of people. So you just start there uh, again in this time of, of of distance i guess i'm i'm stuck there but mm. i just think that if worship is a response to god and, and if it's christian worship and it's a response to the gospel it's in the gospel that god reveals himself as god with you know god with us god with yeah. us and i think that worship uh just meets this need to be with i mean if we're going to be in response to the god who is with us we have this need, this deep need to, to be with one another. And, and that's why, even though I've said worship online can be rich and richer than I ever knew, mm-hmm. I still think there is this need for people to gather because how else could we best honor the God who is with us than to go be with others in his name? We need to be with, we need to sing with, we need to pray with. Uh, we need to mm-hmm. preach with, listen with, walk with. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there are all of these uh, needs of mutuality. Uh, if, if if sin is primarily expressed in self-centeredness, mm-hmm. then the antidote for that is mutuality. Just go somewhere where you can 
you can serve and be served and love and be loved and, and bear one another's burdens. And, and, and all of that happens in worship. Now, if your gifts are music, then you're always asking, you know, how, how can I bring these gifts to bear on, on the lives of people? One other thing real fast, I, I think in a worshiping community, I think one of the things we forget is, is the way that the, the, the community of faith uh, bears witness. And I certainly mean in a gospel sense, in a missional sense, but I also just mean in an interpersonal way um, th- th- that these are the people that, that witness the most important moments of my life, the moment of my salvation or the moment of my baptism, or they're the ones who share with me moments of prayer or commitment or amazing brokenness before God. But there's just this incredible way that my brothers and sisters in Christ bear witness with me to my life in Christ. They're always bringing back to me the the truths that I've forgotten, even if it's something that I once said. Um, but just because they were with me, they were witnesses, you know, to 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 me in worship in these moments of my life. Uh, it's just a, a, amazing how we need that. You know, the commitments you make at home by yourself are never as important as the commitments you make in front of other people. We need wow. others just to to bear witness with us, and 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 I think worship serves that function. So, so when you're planning worship for Sunday, you know, and you talked about the man who says that that song that you sang, it spoke, you know, that's what they're saying. That song bore witness to something so deep Mm. in me and something that I desperately needed to hear that I didn't even know how to say, you know, it's just that the way that that music, the way that worship, the way that our life together just allows us to bear witness to, to the truths uh, and the struggles and the, and the beauty of the life of faith. I, I think that's what the worship, worshiping community does, and that's why we have to do it together. So we can create space, time, um, liturgy, you know, I mean, the order of service, the things we choose to include. When you were talking about that, I thought of infant dedications that you do at Woodburn that everybody says, nobody does them like Tim Harris. Uh, it's true. It's just, that's one of those moments where we are bearing witness to the parents as they dedicate this child. And, you know, you say, listen, little ones, as you, um, as I speak words that you will come to understand, you know, those kinds of things are so beautiful because we create space for those. And it's not just about singing and preaching. It's, it's so much bigger than that. It's so much more communal than that. It's so much more connected than that. And, and so listeners, I, we have to stop because I asked him for 30 minutes and he's been way more generous already. <laughs> um, but now you have an idea of why I talk about him every time we have an episode. Um, thank you for being my pastor, for being my friend, for being my brother, for being my mentor, for teaching me about worship. Um, it's not fair that we've been in ministry somewhere around the same length of time and I'm the worship guy and you keep teaching me about worship, but I'm grateful for it, even though it's not fair. Um, so thank you. You you are a gift to me and to my family and to our church and to our community. And this yeah, is you a as well, right. privilege. I, it's a blessing to work with you and you teach me about worship every single time we're together. So uh, it's mutual. It's good. Bethany, you're awesome too. I love you so much. What a gifted musician. What a wonderful leader. What just a, yeah. such a radiant spirit. Yes. And uh, uh, amazing woman of God. God bless you. You're, you're a, 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 I'm so glad to know you're in the kingdom and that you're in our community. You're great.
Thank you so much. Amen to that. So thank you for listening. Uh, if you have somebody you can share this content with, my goodness, I can't imagine how um, helpful this could be to pastors as well as worship leaders, worship pastors, um, team members who are discouraged. I think if they listen to this, they would walk away with courage. So feel free to share this. Uh, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find So Every Soul Sings and help us. We want to build a share. tribe of people. We want to try share, to share, share, share. Yeah, we want to build a tribe of people all over the world who will make it so every soul gathers not just to see each other, um, but to sing like from their souls sing. So thank you. We love you guys. Oops. Cancel. Stop recording.